Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of poisoning and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On a late summer night in western Washington, two women stared each other down. 42-year-old Stella Nickel and her daughter, 26-year-old Cynthia Hamilton. This wasn't your typical mother-daughter disagreement. Only moments earlier, Stella had broken the news that her husband, 52-year-old Bruce Nickel, was dead. And Cynthia was pretty certain her mom had caused it. After all, Stella had been talking about poisoning Bruce for months now. Cynthia wanted to ask the question, but she couldn't find the words. And Stella wasn't about to admit to her crime. She told her simply, I know what you're thinking. The answer is no. For nearly 10 seconds, the two sat in silence. Stella waited, ready to shoot down any suspicions Cynthia might have. But her daughter said nothing. Relieved, Stella got up and poured them both a drink. She assumed that was the end of it. But Cynthia's roommate, Dee Rogers, stood just outside the door. She had heard everything. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief, did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. Last week, we started our deep dive on Stella Nickel. We detailed how Stella's rough childhood acclimated her to violent relationships. Then we discussed how her marriage to Bruce Nickel soured to the point that she decided to kill him. This week, we'll cover Stella's crime and the actions she took that led to the death of a second victim. Then we'll take you through the 18-month investigation leading up to Stella's eventual arrest and trial. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Money Maker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA... 
and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. On the evening of June 5th, 1986, 42-year-old Stella Nickel waited patiently in the kitchen. Everything was going according to plan. Her husband, 52-year-old Bruce Nickel, had just come home, complaining of a headache. Like always, she'd given him four extra strength Excedrin. Only this time, Stella had laced the capsules with cyanide. She knew the drug would kill Bruce almost immediately, but she had an airtight plan. After Bruce died, doctors would find cyanide in his system. Then police would find the other laced bottles she'd left in local stores. They'd attribute Bruce's death to an anonymous tamperer on the loose. No one would ever suspect her of murder. She heard Bruce come back inside from the porch, trudge into the living room, and then she heard a thud. Stella rushed to the den where Bruce laid on the ground. His face turned cherry red as his body went white. He gasped for air. Instead of racing to call 911, Stella made her way to the phone slowly. She wanted to give the poison time to work. When she finally called emergency services, she pretended to be in a state of panic. She told the operator that her husband had fallen and needed help. The woman on the other line asked if Bruce was breathing. Stella already knew he was struggling, but she didn't tell the operator that. Instead, she put the phone down and went to check on Bruce in the other room, letting the clock keep ticking. On the floor, Bruce could barely breathe. Stella watched him fight for his life, but she was unfazed. Before we continue with Stella's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. According to a review from St. Catherine University, witnessing domestic violence as a child can lead to an inability to create emotional attachments later in life. And when there's a lack of close relationships, there can be increased aggression and violence. That vicious cycle had played out in Stella's life. After an abusive childhood, she spent her adulthood bouncing from one man to another. A serious intimate relationship had never materialized, and she'd grown accustomed to violence as a means to an end. When things didn't go well in her relationships, she resorted to aggression to get her way. Killing Bruce was an extreme escalation of that violence, but she could do it because it seems she felt no emotional attachment to him. When the first volunteer firefighters arrived on the scene, everything appeared so tranquil they weren't sure which mobile home to go to. They spotted a woman peeking out through the screen door of her trailer, watching them. After a few moments, she waved them over her way. The firefighters thought her calm behavior was odd, but she wasn't their main concern at the moment. It was Bruce. The responders rushed to his aid. As they assessed his state, Stella told them multiple times that he had just taken Excedrin. The paramedics noted the information, but they were more concerned with Bruce's inability to breathe. 
They informed her that Bruce needed to be airlifted to Seattle immediately. No one thought much about the pain relievers he had taken. Stella and her mother, Cora Lee, followed the helicopter to Seattle. Throughout the drive, and even once they were at the hospital, Stella remained calm and collected. It was strange behavior for a panicked wife, but hospital staff assumed she was internalizing her worry. After all, people act in peculiar ways during a crisis. At 8.45 p.m., Harborview doctors declared Bruce Nickel dead, but they were unsure of the cause. They asked Stella for permission to perform an autopsy to get to the bottom of it. Stella had to suppress a smile. Her plan was working. An autopsy would almost certainly find that Bruce died from accidental poisoning. After that, she could claim the $135,000 life insurance policy. She was so close, she could almost taste it. She signed the papers right then and there. As the pathologist got to work on the autopsy, Stella dealt with the aftermath of Bruce's death. She stared down the list of people who had to be notified. First, she went to Bruce's cousin, Dick Nickel. She cried on his doorstep as she told him Bruce had died. She played the grieving wife part well. She asked him to come with her to tell Bruce's parents, Walter and Ruth Nickel. She drove with him all the way to their house, but in the end, she never got out of the car, too distressed. She let Dick give his parents the news. After that, she called Bruce's boss. She told him, Bruce won't be in today. He died. Bruce's employer was taken aback by the matter-of-fact way Stella delivered the news. And finally, it was time to tell her daughter, Cynthia, what happened. Cynthia got a call from her roommate, Dee Rogers, who said Stella was on her way over and Cynthia needed to come home immediately. Cynthia didn't know what her mom had to tell her, but she had her suspicions. After all, she had heard her mother talk seriously about murdering Bruce for months. Sure enough, when Cynthia got home, Stella told her the news. Bruce was dead. But before Cynthia could ask any further questions, Stella appeared to read her mind. She made a cryptic statement that she knew what Cynthia was thinking and that her answer was no. Dee Rogers stood outside the door, listening in. She had no idea what Stella meant, but Cynthia certainly did. In the days that followed, friends and family noticed Stella's strange composure. She didn't seem to be grief-stricken at all. At Bruce's funeral, it was Cynthia who cried hysterically, while Stella sat quietly. Dick Nickel went so far as to tell the funeral director he thought Stella killed Bruce. He didn't know how or why, but he had a feeling. And within days of the funeral, Stella was out on the town again. As far as Stella was concerned, she had nothing to worry about. The autopsy would come back, the police would immediately recall Excedrin bottles like they did in Chicago, and Bruce's death would be ruled an accident. But with every day that passed, Stella grew more and more impatient. What was taking so long? Finally, the hospital pathologist called. They had the results. Bruce had died from emphysema. Stella froze. 
That wasn't right. She was staring at the bowl that she had used to mix the cyanide. She had two bottles of tampered capsules in her kitchen cabinet, and yet the hospital said emphysema. She told them Bruce had just had a state physical in January, and no one had found emphysema then. But the pathologists insisted their findings were right, and Stella couldn't argue. How could she? Instead, she thanked the pathologist and hung up the phone. Now she had two options. She could accept the hospital's finding, be in the clear, and file for the standard $25,000 to $35,000 payout. Enough money to settle her debts, but not enough for the fish store she had planned on opening. Or she could wait for the other cyanide-laced bottles to be found. She'd planted three in local stores. Sooner or later, someone would buy them, and someone would take the poisoned capsules. It meant someone else would die, of course, but hopefully it would expose the tampered medicine. Then Stella could bring Bruce's death back up to the police. She'd remind them he'd also taken Excedrin. After re-examining the facts, they would likely reverse his autopsy findings and it would mean she could claim the extra $100,000. Stella decided to go with that plan. She wanted the money. So she waited, but not for long. On June 11, 1986, 40-year-old Auburn bank manager Sue Snow woke up for her day. Her husband, Paul Webking, was already at work. It was just her and her 15-year-old daughter, Haley, in the house. Sue went into the bathroom to get ready for work. She took two extra-strength Excedrin capsules first thing. She often took them for a quick jolt of caffeine rather than drinking coffee, and her husband used the medication to manage his arthritis. She continued getting ready, but after a moment, she started feeling lightheaded. Then she fell to the ground, hitting her head on the bathtub. Her daughter Haley heard the noise while in the shower, but thought nothing of it. It was only after she got out that she realized the faucet in her mother's bathroom was still running. Haley rushed into her mother's bathroom and found her on the ground. She immediately called 911, but by the time Sue Snow was airlifted to Harborview Hospital, it was too late. Sue Snow was brain dead. Up next, Stella brings Bruce's death back under the spotlight. And now back to the story. After Seattle's Harborview Hospital incorrectly identified her husband's cause of death, 42-year-old Stella Nickel had to regroup. For her to collect the full $135,000 insurance payout, Bruce's death had to be deemed an accident. This meant she had to wait for a second person to die from the Excedrin she'd poisoned. That person wound up being Sue Snow. She was declared brain dead. On June 11, 1986, with no other options, the Snow family took 40-year-old Sue off life support. They sent her immediately to be autopsied. Everyone wanted to know what had caused her death. During the autopsy, the pathologist's assistant said she smelled something like bitter almonds, or in other words, cyanide. 
only a small amount of people can actually smell cyanide. Stella hadn't known this. She thought everyone could smell it, which was why she was so sure the hospital would find it during Bruce's autopsy. But without the scent, cyanide is easy to miss. It was only thanks to the assistant that the senior pathologist was able to detect the cause of death. Sue Snow had been poisoned. The only questions now were how and why. Police immediately began an investigation into Sue Snow's death. They quickly determined that the poison came from the Excedrin she took the morning of her death. They located the bottle at her house and determined that the capsules had indeed been laced with cyanide. Soon, it wasn't just Auburn detectives on the case. The FBI descended onto the small town. It had only been four years since the Chicago Tylenol murders, and the FBI wasn't about to allow another product tampering case to go unsolved. News outlets made Sue Snow's death the lead story. Investigators pulled Excedrin bottles from local stores, and Excedrin manufacturer Bristol Myers declared a nationwide recall. Everyone was on high alert. Meanwhile, Stella sat in her mobile home watching this all play out on the news. Now was the time to make her move. On June 17th, she called the police in hysterics. She said she had just seen the news about Sue Snow. She told them about Bruce's death and that she had found Excedrin bottles from the same lot as the one taken by Sue Snow. The police told her they'd be right there. Stella had been hysterical when she called the police, but by the time detectives arrived at the trailer park, she was back to being perfectly calm. She answered all their questions and attempted to be helpful. She handed over two bottles of extra-strength Excedrin. FBI Special Agent Ike Nakamoto wanted to cover all the bases. He asked Stella about any life insurance involved. She said Bruce just had one policy, and she didn't know the amount. The police told Stella they would look into things. They ordered the hospital to review Bruce's autopsy, and they tested the Excedrin bottles. The tests came back positive. The Excedrin bottles Stella had given them were laced with cyanide, and Bruce's cause of death was reversed. He had indeed been poisoned. But Stella worried that she had made a serious mistake. The police had found a total of five tampered Excedrin bottles, and Stella had been in possession of two of them. In retrospect, that looked suspicious. She decided to do something to throw them off her scent. Instead of tampering with more Excedrin, this time Stella laced maximum strength anison. She left the tampered bottle at a pay-and-save store. But then she started to feel guilty. She hadn't intended to kill Sue Snow, but her death had been essential for her plan to work. If another person died, it would be totally pointless and all her doing. She decided the least she could do was make sure the police found the Anison before somebody bought it. Stella went back to the pay-and-save store. Doing everything she could to act normal, she made her way to the medicine aisle. There, on the shelf where she had left it, was the tampered bottle of Anison. She recognized it from the red and orange stickers, unique to this bottle because she had bought the Anison from a different store. 
Stella grabbed the anison and put it in her basket. Then she walked two aisles over and wandered down the row. She stopped in the peanut section and put the anise in there, hoping an employee would notice that it was in the wrong aisle and then realize it was merchandise from an entirely different store. On June 24th, this is exactly what happened. A pay-and-save manager found the out-of-place bottle and realized it wasn't from his store. Given the panic surrounding the Excedrin recall, he decided to play it safe and call the FBI. Agents found poisoned capsules inside the bottle. After that, the case picked up even more speed. Luckily for Stella, the police weren't too interested in her. Instead, they zeroed in on Paul Webking, Sue Snow's husband. For good reason, there were a number of suspicious circumstances surrounding Paul. His wife was a reported tablet user, not a capsule user. He seemed to know what Sue had done the morning she died, even though he hadn't been home. He was a truck driver with easy access to medicine being delivered to local stores, and conveniently, Sue Snow died on trash day, which meant there was no evidence left in their home. Not to mention, Sue Snow's family thought he did it. But then, Paul Webking agreed to take a lie detector test and passed. Still, FBI Special Agent Jack Cusack wasn't convinced of Paul's innocence, yet any evidence they had against him was circumstantial. The police started looking for additional suspects. That was when an FBI chemist made an interesting discovery. In the cyanide-laced pills, he found green specks of an unknown substance. After analysis, he determined they came from a product called Algae Destroyer. The product was used most commonly in home aquariums. In Seattle, one of the officers who had interviewed Stella remembered she had two fish tanks in her mobile home. With that, the police started to circle back to Stella Nickel, the strange widow. FBI Special Agent Ron Nichols didn't buy her story already. Plus, she had two of the five tampered bottles, suspiciously bought two weeks apart. And then they found out about the insurance policy. As the authorities started to piece together their new theory, Stella continued with her payday plan. On July 7th, she went to the insurance office to file her claim. She provided Bruce's amended death certificate, along with dozens of newspaper clippings about his death. The insurance officer told Stella it would be handled quickly. With that, Stella felt free to start her new life. She hit the bars every night. She brought new men home to the trailer she and Bruce had shared. But as she partied, an insurance investigator began looking into Bruce Nichols' death. He needed to confirm if it was qualified as accidental. As he gathered information, his gut told him something was off. He called the FBI just to be safe. As the days and weeks passed, Stella grew anxious. She hadn't received her money yet, and every time she called, she was told it would be handled soon. At last, the insurance office told her the truth. She was under federal investigation. She wouldn't receive any of the insurance claims until she was cleared. Stella was stunned. The FBI were investigating her? She didn't understand. 
What had gone wrong? As Stella panicked, the FBI acquired more evidence. They spoke with the owner of Fish Gallery and Pets, an aquatic store Stella frequented. Owner Tom Noonan identified Stella as one of his customers. The agents wanted to know whether Stella had ever bought Algae Destroyer. Tom confirmed he'd ordered it especially for her. He also told the agents he'd instructed Stella to crush up the tablets to mix them properly. Stella had made a critical mistake. She'd used the same bowl to mix Algae Destroyer and then later the cyanide batch. The leftover residue from the aquatic product tied her to the poison. It was a big break for the FBI, but they knew they needed more. Meanwhile, Stella's daughter Cynthia was crumbling under the knowledge of what her mother had done. In October 1986, nearly four months after her stepfather's death, she couldn't keep it in any longer. She confessed to her roommate, Dee Rogers, that Stella had killed Bruce. Dee told Cynthia to go to the FBI, but she was reluctant. Stella was Cynthia's mother. They were closer now than they'd ever been. Stella even talked about opening a fish store together and took Cynthia to look at some property. Dee suspected this was only Stella's way of buying her daughter's silence. Stella had no idea that Cynthia was about to break. She was too focused on the FBI. She wanted to know what they had on her. So she agreed to talk to them. She was so confident she would walk out unscathed, she showed up without a lawyer. In a study, criminologists Thomas Lochran and Ray Paternoster found that overconfident criminals believe their probability of being caught is much lower than what is warranted given their ability. For them, perception of risk is often out of line from reality. Stella had committed the crime in the first place because to her, the risk of getting caught was improbably low. And now that same overconfidence was driving her to act against her own self-interest. Stella went to the FBI offices and spoke with them for an hour and a half. She retold her version of events and stuck to her story that Bruce only had one insurance policy, even though she knew there were more. In fact, there was another policy she hadn't initially counted on, bringing the total up to $175,000. The FBI knew this, and they knew Stella knew it, too. At the end of the session, the agents asked her to take a polygraph. She panicked and refused. But the longer Stella refused, the longer it would take to get her money. Finally, on December 15, 1986, now 43-year-old Stella Nichol took the polygraph. This time, she brought a lawyer. The test consisted of 10 questions. Stella failed the test miserably. Special Agent Cusack tried to coax a confession out of Stella on the spot, but she immediately left. The FBI had their suspect, but without a confession, they knew a trial would be difficult. That was until Stella's daughter, Cynthia, decided to talk. Up next, Stella finds out about her daughter's betrayal. And now, back to the story. 
After bringing the authorities' attention back to her husband Bruce's death, 43-year-old Stella Nickel unwittingly made herself the main suspect. She might have gotten away with it, but then her daughter, Cynthia, agreed to talk to the FBI. At her roommate Dee's urging, Cynthia finally sat down with the federal agents and told them what she knew. Cynthia said she had considered coming forward for months, but that family ties prevented her from saying anything. The truth was, now she had more incentive. A group of drug companies had come together to offer a $300,000 reward to anyone with substantial information. They did not want to get burned by another tampering case. If Cynthia talked, she could get rewarded, handsomely. And she did just that. She talked and talked and talked some more. She told the FBI everything. She even took a polygraph test. Unlike her mother, she passed. The FBI had everything they needed. And Stella still had no idea. By the end of February, Stella was broke. Her pension money had run out, and she had to take a new job to make ends meet. She didn't know about Cynthia's betrayal, but she did notice that her daughter was becoming harder and harder to reach. Finally, on March 18, 1987, 27-year-old Cynthia gave her testimony to a grand jury. When Stella learned her daughter had turned on her, she was shocked. After all, Stella had been raised to believe that what happened in the family stayed in the family. According to psychologist Julie Fitness, betrayal can be intensely distressing when it happens without warning. People who have been betrayed will go to extreme lengths to find out why it happened. They have a need to understand what disrupted the relationship. When Cynthia violated what Stella believed was a shared belief in the importance of family, Stella racked her brain to explain this turn of events. She decided Cynthia did it for the money. She never considered that Cynthia might have talked because of a guilty conscience. After Cynthia's betrayal, Stella knew things were headed south. Still, it took the state almost nine more months to collect enough evidence for the grand jury to hand down an indictment. In that time, Stella continued on in hopes that something might turn in her favor. She reconnected with an old flame, then started up another romance with a co-worker, Fred Phelps. But as it became more and more apparent that her arrest was coming, Stella lost her wild and stubborn streak. She stopped going out, she stayed at home with her boyfriend, Fred, and drank, waiting for the authorities to make their move. Finally, on December 9, 1987, the court indictment was handed down. Stella didn't have to wait any longer. FBI agents descended on 44-year-old Stella's mobile home and arrested her. They charged her with drug tampering that led to the deaths of Bruce Nickel and Sue Snow, Stella went with them, resigned to her fate for now. Stella pleaded not guilty, claiming Cynthia was the one who killed Bruce. She said Cynthia had set her up, all in a ploy to get out of paying back money that she owed Stella and Bruce. Stella's defense team looked into it, but by the time the case came to trial, they all but abandoned this line of thinking. 
The proceedings began on February 16, 1988. Her case was the first to go to trial under a new federal tampering law instituted after the Chicago Tylenol murders. It carried a life sentence. Assistant U.S. Attorney Joanne Maida started opening arguments. She was deliberate, precise, and a stickler for details. She laid out Stella's motivations and plans for the jury. On Stella's team, defense attorney Tom Hillier was much warmer. He tried to appeal to the jury in a friendly manner. He argued that the evidence produced against Stella was circumstantial. The two sides battled it out over the insurance policies and what Stella did and didn't know before Bruce's death. They discussed the five tampered bottles that had been located and the likelihood of Stella having purchased two of them. The prosecution laid out Stella's unhappiness in her marriage and the financial problems that plagued the Nichols. They discussed her questionable actions after Bruce's death. And then on April 25th, Cynthia finally took the stand. As Cynthia took her place in the witness box, she looked weak and distraught, but Stella believed this was on purpose. She figured that this was the prosecution's way of drumming up support from the jury. As the prosecutor began to ask Cynthia questions, Stella wrote down counterpoints to hand to her own lawyer. Cynthia spoke about her mother's character. She recalled the night she found out Bruce had died and her mother's cryptic statement. But Cynthia admitted she never asked her mother point-blank what had happened. She said, I didn't want her to tell me the truth and I didn't want her to lie to me. Cynthia answered days' worth of questions about how much she knew before Bruce's death. She detailed Stella's plan to kill Bruce and all the discussions they had prior to it as Stella tried to figure out the best avenue. After that, it was the defense's turn. Her lawyer called Dr. David Honigs, an assistant professor of chemistry from the University of Washington. Honigs declared that the algae destroyer had been mixed in deliberately. This suggested that perhaps someone had tried to frame Stella. He couldn't specifically point to Cynthia, but he implied it. But on cross-examination, the prosecution squashed this theory. Dr. Honigs said the specks were too big for someone not to see them and were therefore deliberate. But the assistant U.S. attorney made it clear that the tamperer plausibly could have missed them or saw them and didn't care. After that, it was Stella's turn to take the stand. After she gave an overview of her life prior to settling in Auburn, Stella then detailed her relationship with Bruce. For every point that had been made against her, Stella had a counter-argument, or a straight-up denial. She said that life for her and Bruce improved after he stopped drinking and that she enjoyed having a sober husband. In fact, she said, her love for her husband grew after he returned from rehab. Stella admitted to financial stress, but she claimed it was nothing out of the ordinary. They both had jobs at the time of Bruce's death, which helped ease the tension. As for the insurance claims, she said that she truly believed there was only one policy. In regards to the books on poisonous plants, she said she read up on those because she was worried about her grandchild possibly stumbling across them on the trailer park property. And then Stella told the jury about the aftermath of Bruce's death. 
she put on a good show, getting teary-eyed and emotional. After she finished, Joanne Maida got up to cross-examine. She walked Stella through all of the insurance details once more. This time, Stella was forced to admit she knew more about the money owed to her than she had said. As the trial came to a close on May 3, 1988, the jury went off to deliberate. For six days, Stella waited for her fate. Finally, on May 9th, the jury returned with their decision. They found Stella guilty on all counts of product tampering. The judge sentenced Stella to 90 years in prison, with a possibility of parole in 30 years. After the trial, Cynthia received $250,000 of the reward money. The additional $50,000 was split between Tom Noonan, D. Rogers, and other helpful witnesses. To this day, Stella claims the reward money influenced all of their testimony. Stella tried to appeal her case twice, once in 1989 and again in 2001 after hiring two private detectives, but neither appeal was successful. In 2018, 75-year-old Stella became eligible for parole. She's still waiting on her hearing. Without parole, she'll remain in prison until 2040, at which time she'll be 97 years old. Stella's case was the first time anyone had been charged under the federal drug tampering laws. As a result, her trial and conviction played a major role in reforming the way drugs are manufactured. The easily contaminated two-piece capsule was replaced with the new and improved Caplet, a solid tablet in capsule shape. The pharmaceutical industry also designed new anti-tampering packages for their products. If you purchase a bottle of Excedrin today, you'll likely see a plastic wrapping over its cap and an induction seal on the inside. We take these safety precautions for granted, but they were created in large part because of Stella Nickel. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Stella Nickel, amongst the many sources we used, we found Bitter Almonds, Mothers, Daughters, and the Seattle Cyanide Murders by Greg Olson, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.